I try to teach and stay tethered to the Bible, and I believe that is what is most helpful for God's people. But just to give you a little bit of an intro to me, you know how we, we all, and this does tie to the sermon, so it's not completely random, thank you. Uh, you know how we all, we all have pet peeves? I think that one of mine is I'm a little impatient. Yeah, imagine that. I see it in traffic when somebody runs ahead of me in the other lane and then jumps in front of me. I honestly sometimes want to just go yank them out of their car and beat them to a pulp. And I'm a pastor, so that's not good. Um, But I also see it when I go into the grocery store. And often, well, truthfully, I don't go into the grocery store that often. My wife does that most of the time. So when I go, it is to grab just a few, few items, and then I get to the checkout counter, and I look, and I'm surveying, like, which one is going to move the fastest. And typically, I end up choosing the 10 items or less. It's always a problem. I get over there, and somebody didn't read 10 items or less, or they just thought, well, I've only got 27 items. And, uh, and so I stand there, you know, behind them. My alternate ego is in another aisle over there going, if I was over there, I'd already be checked out. But I'm standing there, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. And it looks as though this person has been medically diagnosed with some slow motion disorder. I mean, they're just putting their stuff on the counter, and I just want to go, could I help you with that? I'd like to help you put your stuff on the counter, and we can just move on. All of us be happy. And then they can't find their checkbook. And so they're all in their purse, or maybe, you know, in this case, sorry, ladies, I'm, I'm picking out uh, you. They're all in their purse trying to find their checkbook, and then it's like, well, I can't find my checkbook. I guess I have to pay with credit. And then they start trying to get their card to work in the machine, and it's like, they have no idea how that thing works. And I'm just wanting to go, I'll do it for you. Matter of fact, I'll pay for your groceries. I'll back them and take them to your car. And then I get in my car, and I'm on my way to the house, and lo and behold, I have gotten behind clinically, medically diagnosed slow motion person. And she's doing the same thing driving out of the parking lot. And so we finally get out of the parking lot, and some guy flies past me, and my father used to always say it this way, if he's in that big a hurry, he should have left yesterday. And that's my thought. And, you know, to me, it's interesting, isn't it? We all kind of see life from our point of view. And the reality is, how can you help but see life but from your point of view? It's you, right? Today, I'm going to talk about trying to make a shift. It feels subtle, but I think it is monumental in your relationship with God. And so, my, time, uh, my sermon title is The Full Enjoyment of God is our ultimate homecoming. The full enjoyment of God is our ultimate homecoming. And my text and that title is flowing, I believe, 
directly out of my text in Philippians 1, 20 through 23. And I'm going to show you that. Paul knows, Paul is writing Philippians 1, and he's writing that letter to the Philippians. Paul knows that it is his presence, his fullness, God's presence, God's fullness that ultimately brings happiness and brings peace and it brings love and it brings beauty and it brings goodness and it brings truth and it brings justice all overflowing into this great fullness of joy. I don't know about you, I think that God created me this way and some of us may not be this way and that's fine. But when I see these kids come up here, and I know I raised three, we raised three children. Believe me, she did more than me. But, uh, but I know that they're boogers, and they're, they're a handful. But when I see, for me at least, we had one boy and two girls. When I see that two, three-year-old child, it is an echo of the beauty of God for me. And I think that's why we, you know, as grandchildren or grandparents, when, when the grandchildren come along, it's just, you know, I haven't had that experience yet, but I'm, I'm praying we do. There's something in that that is whispering to us the goodness of God. And so, Paul knew to be with the Lord would be the fullness of that. And so the fullness of enjoyment of God is our ultimate homecoming. But let me say this, and this is where it's going to get challenging, and you've probably never heard this before in a church in your life, possibly. Many in the church, follow me, this is subtle, but if you get it, I think it may change the way you view God for all eternity. Many in the church believe Christianity is mostly about salvation and the forgiveness of sins. That's what most people believe. But the Bible says that is not true. Christianity is not mostly about man or his salvation, but it is about God himself and his glory. To not see this has caused great harm to the church. And I would say great harm to the American church. There are millions that are attending church services this morning who believe Christianity is really about their salvation and going to heaven. It's just not true. It's not true. It is subtle, but it is enormous. The difference in the view of God and ourselves. The reason I started with the grocery store story is because all of that was me-centric. 
The reason I'm frustrated, perhaps with the older woman in front of me who can't help but the fact that she's maybe 84 and she's got cataracts and she moves slower now and she can't find her checkbook because she can't see well. I'm not taking any of that into account. It's just about me. I just want to get through the checkout line. And that is how we view our lives. We are me-centric. God is the most valuable thing in all the universe. It started with him. The Westminster divines said it this way, and I think they said it as good as anybody. You want to know what your purpose in life is? This is probably the best summary I've ever heard. The chief end of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. Now, I love that it says to enjoy him because there's in every one of us a deep desire for joy. And God is saying it's not separate. Knowing me and ultimate joy is what Paul is saying in our passage. They're together. And that's what Paul's saying. I'd rather die and go be with him because I know that joy. I know that joy. But to stay here with y'all, no, that's not what he's saying. But to stay here means labor and hardship and pain. And that's not just him being saintly. He really believes that and wants that. God was not created for us to worship. He wasn't. Matter of fact, God was not created. He has always been. No beginning, no ending. God's plan to save man from his sin is not the ultimate thing in the universe. It's just not. That is a very common and man-centered view of who God is. It's all about us, isn't it? We come to church so that we can be saved. We come to church for our salvation. Let me say it another way. God performs redemption and salvation of man with something far, far greater in mind. It's not his end game. So, the natural question is, what is God's purpose? What is God's end game? What does God stay up at night thinking about? What is God's desires for creation? One has said it this way, God's chief end is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. Now, when you hear that, if you're like me, the first time I read that, I thought, man, that sounds like a very narcissistic God. But let me say something quickly. That's God we're talking about. And here's the thing. If it were you or me, and I said, my chief end is to glorify myself, which I've tried most of my life, and to enjoy myself forever, that would be narcissistic. Because I'm a sinner. In God, there is complete perfection. 
There is no sin. All that is right about these children is God. All the beauty that you see when you look at a sunset is God. All the wonder in this world that you take in and we worship almost sometimes the creation, it's God. When you have a relationship in your family that really is working and it's not broken and fragmented and hurting and painful, but that relationship is bringing life to you, that's God. You see, we don't see God in those things. We think that's just the natural way life is. But that's not true. If God were not finally and ultimately committed to preserving and displaying his glory, we could never know true happiness. You could never know goodness. You could never know real laughter from the gut. You could never know love. You could never really have family. You could never have intimacy. These are all only echoes, just echoes of the goodness and majesty and glory of God. And that is why God's chief end is to bring glory to himself because ultimately it comes back and we're not the ultimate reason for it, but it does come back to us. We get to experience the glory of that. God is infinitely joyful. He's happy. You know why he's happy? His plans don't get frustrated. When I'm standing in the checkout line, I'm frustrated. When I'm, when I'm sitting on 285 and somebody flies down the fire lane or whatever that is over there and jumps in front of me, I'm mad. I mean, I'm steaming. God's plans are never frustrating. God is gloriously happy. God created man out of joy. It was joy that brought the Trinity together and out of their happiness overflowed fullness has this propensity like this glass. If I were to keep filling it up and keep filling it up, eventually it will become so full, it would just overflow. The secret to the universe is that God and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were so full, their propensity was to overflow and to create us to share in their joy. And to share in their happiness. And when we do, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Did you get that? God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And so when I am walking around grumbling about my life and the way it's turned out and wishing something was really different, what I'm really doing is saying, God... I don't worship you. And in a moment, I'm going to get to some hard stuff like suffering. And some of you in this room, because you've lived longer or just the way it is, you have a PhD in suffering. I know that. And I don't. And so when I talk about it, 
I'm going to tread lightly. But I hope the things that I will share with you will be comforting to your soul. Because a God that is not sovereign doesn't help me. In other words, if Satan can just do whatever he wants in the world and cause all kind of death and affliction and pain and disease and God's not in control, that doesn't help me. What helps me is that a sovereign God who loves me and has brought me into a relationship, into his family with him, is controlling everything. And so when my wife dies or something horrible happens, I have a rock, an anchor to come back to in God. And I may not understand it, but he's in control and he says all things work together for the good of those who love him. That helps me. That's a rock. That's an anger, an anchor, not an anger. So, fullness has a propensity to overflow. The Trinity created us out of joy. Psalm 1611 says this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Wow. What a promise. What a promise. God is reigning over all things. Now, I said I was going to talk about the hard things. In our text, let's go back to it. If you have a Bible... I love for our people to be people in the Bible, people of the Word. Look with me at Philippians 1, 20 through 23. This is what Paul said to the Philippians. We've already read it. Joel read it a moment ago, but, but for reminder's sake. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. Christ will be exalted in my body. That means he will be made much of through my life. Christ will be made much of through my life. For to me, he says, to live is Christ. My life is wrapped up in his life. For me to live is Christ. But if I could die, <laughs> that would be gain. To go be with him would be fullness of joy. He says, if I'm, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Now, in the beginning of that, he says, I don't want to be ashamed. What would he be ashamed of? Look with me, if you would, at uh, Philippians 1, 12 and 14, 12 through 14. It's just right there above what we just read. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, which was he got put in prison for preaching the gospel, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of my brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, 
are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, here's the deal. Let's fast forward this to 2018. And let's say that because of our culture, things have changed or whatever. It's a little different dynamic. And I'm out there and I share Christ or you're out there and you share Christ. And the police come and they grab you and they lock you up and they throw you in jail. And you say, what's What's going on? Well, you're out there sharing Christ. That's illegal now. And you're going to spend however forever maybe in here in this prison. You know what we do? And we can't help but do this. At some point during my imprisonment stay, I think to myself, God, I was out there sharing your gospel. I was out there doing your thing. I wasn't out there stealing. I wasn't out there doing my thing. I was doing your thing, and this is the thanks that I get. I'm in prison. Can't you see I'm in prison? That's so far from what Paul did. I don't know how he does it, but he gets to prison, and in his mind, he goes, all right, boys, I got an idea. We are here for a reason. There is a sovereign God that is even sovereign over my imprisonment, and we must have somebody here. God must have somebody here that is supposed to hear the gospel and respond in faith, and that's what happens. The whole prison guard. So instead of as a believer When something horrible happens in our life going, why me? Why not say, God, what are you you doing here? Let me be faithful. Let me be faithful. Whatever this is, whatever hardship this is, I want to be faithful. So, when it is hard, we choose to be faithful, to glorify God in our bodies. The goal, going back to the beginning, the goal of the gospel is not forgiveness. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But your life, your joy, your happiness in Christ would announce to the world his glory to be revealed and worshiped. That's the end game. That's the end game. It's not really about you. It really isn't. It's about him. It's about him. It's about his glory. And again, I would say that sounds narcissistic, but we're talking about God. Everything that is true, good, and right is God. And so, this is what Paul is saying He's saying it in, a, in another way. He says, you know, but for if I am to go on living in this body, it will mean fruitful labor. If I'm going to go on living, it's going to mean fruitful labor. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And here's the thing. Especially in our suffering and pain. I don't want to hear that. I don't even want to preach that because what I really want in myself and in my flesh 
is a comfortable life. But if you just read the Bible, suffering for the believer is all through it. You know why? Because when we suffer and we hang on to God, when there doesn't seem to be a good reason, it makes much of him. And people say, wow, do you see that? He must have something I don't have. How do they do that? How do they hang on in the midst of that? Isaiah 48.10 says it this way. God, God brings hard stuff. He brings hard stuff to believers to test us. Isaiah 48.10 says this. I think you can see it on the screen. You, you don't have to turn there. It says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Now, that's Satan saying that, right? That's Satan saying that. Oh, Never mind, that's the prophet Isaiah saying that. No, that's God. God is saying, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. That's God. Proverbs 17.3. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord, who? You test my heart. The people at the checkout alley test my heart. The people on 285 test my heart. No, God tests my heart. God brings hard things into my life. God wants me to make much of him in the midst of hard stuff because it brings him glory. And then... In uh, 2 Corinthians 4, it says this, 4, 7, and 10. We have this treasure in jars and clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every, afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. The life of Jesus is to be lived out through my body. That's John 15, 5. If you abide in the branch, he will live his life through you. Part of living his life through you is suffering. So God leaves us, you, me, all of us, in a broken world, and what it produces is way better than a comfortable life that we all want. In our suffering, I want you to hear this. Maybe you've checked out for a moment, but hear this part right here. In our suffering, God isn't giving us less, but he is graciously giving us more. Sure, it doesn't feel like that doesn't feel that way to me, and it, it takes great hope. Take heart. Scripture never, never looks down on the sufferer. It never mocks our pain. God never turns a deaf ear 
to our cries. Matter of fact, the scriptures say he, he knows every tear, every, every broken heart of his people, he knows. He is intimately aware. And it's not, a, it's not a cruel, at the heart, when you get down to the very bottom of who God is, it is love. It is compassion. So, Scripture never looks down on our pain. One measure, and this, is a, this to me is a nugget, a nugget of gold. One measure of our being right with God one measure of our reconciliation with God is whether or not his sovereign decrees, his sovereignty, his sovereign work draws from us a response of worship or a response of anger. What about you? There's present pain in your life. There's past pain in your life. And I promise you, if you don't die today eating out here, there's going to be future pain in your life. The question is, where do we go with our pain? And what I'm saying is we take our pain to a loving, sovereign God, and we get on our knees and we pour out our hearts to him and we cry and we say, Lord, be with me. Don't leave me or forsake me, as Isaiah 41.10 says. And he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never do that. So forgiveness is not the ultimate goal of the gospel. Forgiveness is always a means to something greater. Our forgiveness and salvation is how we begin to make much of Christ. But the ultimate goal is that Christ be glorified in worship. So, this is big stuff, the, the idea of forgiveness and all that. But we may come to a place where it's like, what did the early church fathers say about this? There is one named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Now, I say that name all the time, so it's easy for me. You shouldn't try it at home. Count Nicholas Zinzendorf was an early church father of the Moravian church. I had to look up where that was. You can, do, you can Google it yourself later. This is what he said. I love this. Moving away from me being the center. He says, not just preachers. This is for you too, okay? This is what he said. We should endeavor to do no more than to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. We should endeavor to do no more than to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Now, what is that guy getting at? He is saying, biblical Christianity is you, you have your worth as a believer you have your value. It's in him. You don't have to go make a name for yourself. You don't have to go scratch out some value or worth to make yourself feel better about yourself. You're his child. 
all you got to do, all we probably should do is preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Littleness. Aspire to littleness is truly understanding the gospel. When we deeply understand the gospel, our worth is secure. No one can take my worth away from me. I get it in the gospel. No one can take your worth away from you. That snark comment that you heard that somebody said about you, they can't take that. They they can't hurt you. You're his. Your worth and value is in who you are in him. And then in our study right now, we're in John. John the Baptist said it this way. He said, he must become greater, I must become less. And then I looked it up in the message. I thought this was interesting. This is how it says it in another translation that's not really Bible. It's kind of a paraphrase. This, this is how he said it, though, the same thing. This is the assigned moment for him, he's talking about Jesus, for him to move to the center and for me to slip off to the sideline. That is understanding the gospel. Littleness, to aspire to littleness. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. We have sayings like, he really made a name for himself. And we kind of pat that guy on the back and say, man, you, you did it, buddy. You made a name for yourself in this life. That's a common saying. The biblical way to think about that would be he made much of Christ. His life, his death made Christ look marvelous. You see, no man can do both. I can't make much of Clint and also make much of him. I've got to choose. You've got to choose. John says, I'll decrease so that he can increase. And what happens when that happens is we really find life. Then we really begin to live. A humble person is a a free person. A humble person is able to take the gospel and go forward. A humble person can take insults and get hard feedback, and they can just move forward. It's like, it doesn't even, doesn't even affect them. So, First Baptist Chattahoochee, homecoming today, it has elements of the ultimate homecoming. You know, today we will reconnect with old friends, family, we'll worship the Lord together, we'll take a meal together, but at its best, Homecoming here is like trying to hear an echo that you can barely, barely hear. The echo of this homecoming is the future homecoming where there will be this fulfillment of all that is good and true and right. This truth, God is most glorified when Christ is magnified in us. It is not peripheral, and I'm closing with this. You may hear me say this, 
And you may think, eh, you know, maybe that's kind of on the, the outskirts of Christianity. This, what I'm teaching you, I believe, has been the problem with millions. Millions of churchgoers will look at God at some point in their life because of pain and suffering that none of us are going to get out of. And they'll say to God, if you're going to treat me like this, if you're going to treat your children like this, then I'm out of here. I didn't sign up for affliction and poverty when I started going to church. I signed up for protection and prosperity. You didn't deliver, God. I can do better on my own. And for that case, I will. And they walk away from God, and they walk away from the church forever. But you know what they do? Is they hang on to a memory, a distant memory, where maybe in a church like this, they walked down an aisle and had an experience, made a decision. And now Jesus is the ticket. I got my ticket. I know I walked away from God years ago because of what happened, but I got my ticket. I'm going to heaven. This is why I say what I'm teaching is center cut right down the middle. This is the gospel. I want you to hear this. This is huge. And this is where the shift is from me to God. God being center. Here it is. Psalm 37.4. This is what it says. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, It's a command. It's a command to delight. What I'm saying is, it's not just an experience. What I'm saying is, it's not a ticket. If you are not delighting, in other words, you value him more than anything else. The the parable is the, the, the pearl of great price. The man went and sold everything he had to go to this field and buy the pearl of great price. And he didn't just buy it. It says, in his joy, in his joy, he sold everything. And he went and bought that. Christ. What I'm saying is, if Christ is not your greatest joy, if you're finding your hobbies your vacations, your relationships, even your family, your homes, automobiles, sex, then Jesus is not your greatest pleasure. He is not your greatest joy. He is not the longing of your affections. You are probably using God to get what you want out of this life. That should deeply trouble you. Perhaps you do not know him. And those that do not know him, the Bible is clear. They spend eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. Could it be that you've been misled by people like me? That men have stood in the pulpits and they've told you, just come down, just pray a prayer. You can live however you want after that. 
Holiness is not the issue. Just your decision, your experience. That's a lie. It is a lie. And people are going to lose their souls in hell over that lie. We are commanded to delight. And and why would we not be? Christ is better than life itself, says Paul. I would rather go be with him than stay here. So, we come to the end. Here's the thing. You may be sitting there and you're like, how do I do that? How do I, with my affections, make myself treasure him? And I will say this. How do you get a desire you don't have and can't create? And the answer is simple. How do you get a desire you don't have and you can't create? The answer is very simple. You can't. With man, it is impossible. But with God, it is possible. God has told us that if we count the cost and we come to him with our whole hearts and we say, God, I'll sell, the tre- I'll sell everything I got to go buy this treasure that is you. And in our hearts, it's, there's a sincerity. The, the scriptures teach we're separated from God because of our sin. And that unless we come to Christ in that way, it's a false conversion that will lead us to hell. But if we come to Christ in that way, God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, will come into your life and he will change you from the inside out. And your desires will change. Your heart for God will change. From the inside out, when you did not care about the Bible, now you'll start to understand it and the words will jump off the page and your heart for things of God will begin to grow with a simple decision of your will. I think it is impossible, but when you say, Lord, I want you to come in and change me supernaturally, God will do that. And God can change you for all eternity. So, aspire to littleness. Oh, to be little that we might be big in God's kingdom. Preach the gospel. Die and be forgotten in this world. You know why? There is something coming in the next life that promises a homecoming and a fullness that you can only dream of. Let's pray.